right, folks, welcome to this episode of the Jackson Lucas Impact Podcast. Today, we have what I consider a real estate icon, Gene Meyerson. Gene is based in San Francisco. I've known Gene for a number of years. She has been very active in ULI and, and NAOP and different organizations, SPUR. Uh, she's definitely a real leader in the real estate industry. Uh, when I met her, she was uh, the CEO of the Swig Company, which she was there for from 97 to 2014. Since then, she's been on, she's on many boards, not, not you know, volunteering, traveling, uh, doing all that type of stuff. She has a great wealth of information for anyone looking to progress their career in real estate, and she is a real trailblazer. Uh, so with that, as always, please like the podcast, rate and review the podcast, and share with your friends. And if you have any questions or comments, please shoot me an email. Phone number, or please shoot me an email. Or and met. If you have any questions or comments, please shoot me an email. And with that, please enjoy the podcast and have a great day. All right. Okay. Hey, Gene. Hey, Chris. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Good to see you. Nice to see you. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been. Funny couple years. I uh, I was actually in our old building, um, 220 Montgomery, the other day. Oh. Um, I, go th- I go there somewhat regularly. Because uh, when you and I met, you were the president and CEO of the Swig Company. Correct. Which had their headquarters at 220 Montgomery in San Francisco. Yes. Um, you were there a long time. I was there almost 18 years. Mamma mia. Yeah. That's, a great That's awesome. Run. And we're, yeah, um, back in the, the heyday of SF. Are you, do you still live in, in the Bay Area? I'm st- I still I live in San Francisco, yes. And that's where I'm sitting right now. Oh, cool. Where, what part of San Francisco? Uh, Haight-Ashbury, well, more Ashbury Heights, Coal Valley. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I was just in, uh, yeah, so I go into San Francisco probably every like Wednesday or Thursday, but I was there over the weekend too with my son. I love going to the city. I'm da- I live down in San Carlos, which is on the peninsula. Yep. You're, you're sort of a, you probably hate hearing this, but you know, you're like an icon of, of at least Bay Area real estate. Everyone knows who you are. Uh, I was talking to somebody the other day and they're like, you should have something about they, they mentioned your name and I'm like, I'm talking to her tomorrow. Oh, great. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, why can you tell us a little about like, take us through your, your real estate journey? I mean, I know you've, I mean, I know you're on a lot of boards. You're very, you've been very active, uh, throughout your career, but I, I don't really know like your beginnings and how you got started in this, in this industry and kind of where that interest came from. And do you mind just taking us, can we start at the beginning? Sure. Uh, Where'd you grow up? I was born in Evanston, Illinois, and when I was 12, uh, my family moved to San Juan, Puerto Rico, where I spent junior high and high school years. So I'm the only person I know in my college cohort who had fun in high school. (laughs) (laughs) What were they doing in San Juan? Were they missionaries or something? No, my dad worked for the Department of Labor. He was an attorney, and he was working with the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands, and Panama Canal Zone governments setting parallel oh, wow. wage and hour standards to the U.S. standards. 
that's pretty amazing. That was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, that must have been quite a change from Illinois. Uh, total, total. But I had a blast. <laughs> I loved it. And then, uh, how did, did you have an interest in, in real estate? Take us kind of through. It's not, it's not you know, I didn't really know of... anything about real estate. Uh, I loved the built environment. My mom had studied uh, architecture at uh, the Institute of Design, which was uh, what the Bauhaus became when it moved to Chicago okay. from um, to escape Nazi Germany. And so I was, you know, I was exposed to a lot of uh, architecture and my family, my dad was from Chicago. We spent a lot of time, you know, in and around Chicago when I was a kid, but I didn't really know anything about real estate. But, you know, I had that, that long-term interest in just the built environment and um, art and architecture, sculpture, things like that. Uh, I went to college in the Midwest at Grinnell College, where I'm now a trustee. And uh, oh, wow. I, um, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up, but, uh, and so I just followed some passions that I bumped into when I was in college. So I, ma I majored in anthropology and Spanish and with a focus on Latin America and Latin American literature. And did you speak Spanish because of your time in Puerto Rico? Yeah, I learned street Spanish in Puerto Rico. I didn't have very good instruction. So when I went to college, I thought, well, maybe <laughs> I should learn why I'm saying what I'm saying and how to yeah. speak better. And one of my, uh, I did two study abroad programs when I was in college. <clears throat> the first was in Bogota, Colombia. And that's where uh, I think my Spanish, uh, you know, really improved tremendously. Um, speak beautiful Spanish in, in Colombia. And I had a wonderful experience there. And um, I, began, I became very interested when I was there in squatter settlements, which were a mm. uh, sort of organic <clears throat> approach to solving housing issues. Then a year later, I was in London, uh, England for another study abroad program. It was a, a new program that Grinnell was uh, had started, and uh, I learned about squatters in uh, in London. You know, different legal system. So again, it was a some some of the squatters, not all, but some were you know unhoused, and and uh, the British property law has different components that you know when you're in occupancy, you are you have some legal rights as opposed to other legal systems where that's not the case. So without really understanding that it was real estate, I was interested in these you know organic um, solutions, efforts to solve housing issues. Uh, and so when I got out of uh, college, I was I worked for a year doing survey research work around the country, but, uh, but I decided that I, I thought that I could apply my interests to, uh, through a uh, city and regional planning degree focus. So I went to Harvard mm. and got my master's in city and regional planning. When I was there, mm. the program was undergoing a lot of change. Uh, it, it wasn't really what I imagined it might be, not that I really knew what planning was. And I, I sort of figured out that I didn't want to be a planner. I was more interested in doing things, making things happen. 
So my first job right. out of grad school was uh, with a department of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts running community funding community economic development grants. So, you know, getting okay. involved in, in different community ground roots solutions to um, job job needs and, you know, decaying communities. Cause I mean, it seems to run it, be in line with what you kind of the housing solutions in yeah. London and Bogota, like this, how do you create is this? Exactly. How, support society. Yeah. And it was you know, very it's kind of like under underprivileged sort of out of right. Like not yes. out of the mainstream folks. That's right. And it was very idealistic. Like, Oh gee, the, you know, this sounds great community, um, derived solutions. Uh, after a couple of years in, in with the, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, I flipped over and, and was invited to start a community development program with local, um, nonprofit in Cambridge that was sandwich. It was two neighborhoods sandwiched between Harvard and MIT. And, you know, I kind of real at that point through that experience, I, I acknowledged to myself that a trickle down doesn't really trickle and it sure doesn't go down very <laughs> far if it does. And that trying to do neighborhood based solutions to broader uh, structural economic and job creation and job placement issues really didn't work. Uh, so I was introduced to a number of people through all of my different jobs and uh, had built some relationships when I was in grad school and went out and did a whole lot of informational interviewing with people about you know what's out there, what are some other career options. Because uh, I was sort of bumping around exploring things on my own without you know, any formal guidance. Yeah. And well, that's why I became a recruiter because I wanted to figure out all the different jobs. Yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, and so, I swore I was going to take one of them one of these, you know, one of well, these you days. Might still, it's been 20 years, you talk, 20 years. You never know. Right? You talk to people. And then at some point you say, gee, that sounds interesting. I want to check it out, which is what happened to me. So through a lot of informational interviewing, uh, people said, gee, you've got great skills and, and, you know, experience. You ought to look into commercial real estate investment. And it was like, huh, what's that? Mm talked to a lot of people. And when I was in grad school, I knew a couple of, I was friendly with a couple of fellow students who had taken classes at the B school, business school in um, uh, develop, development, but I didn't really know anything about it. So that was never, you know, it, it I didn't avail myself of that because it was something that was outside of my knowledge base. So, um, you know, it's through that process that I focused on commercial real estate investment jobs and was fortunate enough to be hired by um, a, a life company that had recently expanded into, had opened an office in Boston um, out of New York. They had done business in Boston, but they had foreclosed on a bunch of land, large land loans um, in northern suburban Boston. And okay. they were staffing an office uh, to work on a couple of joint ventures in the city and then to master plan, figure out what to do with this land in Andover and Tewksbury and, Mar and then West Marlboro, Massachusetts. So I spent the next couple of years in my career working on uh, master planning some large tracts of land. I worked with a development 
uh, a joint venture partner on the development of a new office tower in Boston. That was Rose Associates, a phenomenal mm. firm out of uh, New York, and mm -hmm. uh, basically was paid to go to school in commercial real estate investment. The gentleman I worked for was kind of a maverick, and he believed in moving people around to, to experience different aspects of um, of real estate so that, and, and what I learned through that process is, is if somebody understands leasing, they understand lending to some extent, you know, they understand the development process and asset management, they're going to be a better acquisitions person. And so all those mm. um, different areas of focus were a wonderful foundation for my real estate career. Yeah, That's I actually had a call the other day from a person from a, a friend of mine who works as an acquisitions person, they, her company is kind of asking her to do a little more asset management. And she asked me advice. Is that like a good move for her career? And I said, well, yeah, I mean, if, yeah, you become a better investor if you understand the, the asset management component of it too. And then going forward, you know, you, you, you wind up being more marketable for whatever you want to do in the future. Cause you've seen more than just one narrow slice of the real estate pie. So I, you know, I'm fortunate because I bumped into real estate. I love the fact that it's um, all about problem solving, which is pretty much what drives me. No two days are the same. No two problems are the same. Um, it's also a people business, and I like working with people. And it was um, fortuitous. So that's how I got started in Boston. And then back when you were doing this, like was, I mean, it, as you, you know, real estate's like, I mean, it's very organized now. It's, you know, there's schools of real estate. There's, we have a lot of organizations, you know, ULIs and the whatever. And it's very like, you can't step outside your office and you could, you could run into a real estate get together. Was, I mean, was it like that at that time? Like, how did you, was it, or some, it seemed like kind of a secret society. It, it was. And a lot of the people who were in it were, thank you for, you know, Trimming it that way because that's very much the way it felt. You bumped into it. You knew you got into it because your dad was in it. There were very few women. I remember some of my initial you know, informational interviews and, and subsequent interviews. People said, "Gee, you've got great skills and ability, but gee, there aren't any women in the field, huh?" Well, maybe that's <laughs> not a big deal. I don't know why you couldn't do it, huh? I mean, you know, it was just this sort of. Um, and then people say, well, do you have a, a, a dad or an uncle or somebody in the business? Like, no, and we're not from Boston. Oh, that's a problem. Yeah. Boston's very provincial, which it was. Right. Uh, so, so there weren't a lot of organizations. While I was uh, at Met in Boston, a um, women's network began to evolve, uh, and it was pretty small. ULI in those days, you know, only the, the you know, really important people were members. Uh, and, uh, you know, so if you were not a very senior person, you probably weren't engaged. Uh, I'm not aware of whether there was an active ULI chapter in Boston because I didn't get involved. NAOP was beginning to be more active. So, you know, the person who ran my office was pushing those of us who worked from get involved with NAOP, get involved in NAOP, because that was, you know, a burgeoning mm. network. But uh, there wasn't much. And then when I moved to the Bay Area, you know, there, there, there weren't a lot of obvious 
points of connection. Were there any women really like before you in this, or was it like every, like you were like the first generation of women? There were a few women. Um, there weren't many. Let's see, there was um, Betsy Clark was fairly senior in MetLife, and she was the one and only. Um, and she was a regional manager. Uh, there were a couple of women in Boston who ran their own firms or were co-leads with, with their husbands. A uh, mm. couple of people in, in Boston that I knew of who worked in the family firm. Uh, there weren't very, I mean, I'm not aware of very many women. And when I moved out here, there were women in brokerage. Uh, right. Leasing, brokerage, right? Yeah, there Generally. were a few people who went to work for, um, there were a couple of women that were senior in asset management, but there weren't a lot. What brought you to the Bay Area? Uh, my husband was in the tech world. And he got a job out here. And um, so off we came. And you know, <laughs> neither of us, you know, neither of us were from the East Coast. And in those days, while we loved it, uh, and we still have a lot of very close friends from uh, these, our, our days in Boston, it seemed very provincial. And because we weren't from there, yeah. that seemed limiting. And uh, the West Coast beckoned. We both wanted to live here, and uh, it just seemed to be a more open, uh, more flexible environment, which it proved to be for me. Yeah. So, so tell me about your experience when you, when you got here. Did you did you have a job in place, or did you? It seems like net. Well, it seems like networking's been a very important part of your career path, right? Yes. Finding new opportunities. Yes. Like what? What do you? Some people are just naturally know how to network a lot of people don't um yeah is, do you have any tips for how to how to network and and make relationships with people in the industry because you don't want to also be the person oh can you help me can you help me can you help me all the time right, right? no one wants to help that person <laughs> yeah i have a 24 year old daughter who's getting started in education and um you know, trying to help her feel comfortable networking and she said but I don't want to keep asking people for things so it's like well there, there's an art to it so tips uh, well let me think through my experience so MetLife uh, relocated me out here which was great of them oh, okay and yeah. in the process of, of working in their then Foster City where were we or Foster City I think um, not right down by me and, um, you know, a couple of our partners, I got to know a couple of our partners working on projects, and they introduced me to a number of opportunities, just saying, gee, you know, um, well, the MetLife today is really different from the MetLife that I joined in, when did I move out here, 88, 89, and um, it was just a more, it, it was just different organized different roles were organized more differently. So some of our, you know, my partners and people I was working with, you know, took me under their wing and said, oh, you're new to the area. Let me introduce you to a bunch of folks. And oh, there's this really interesting opportunity over here. And oh, you got to talk to so-and-so over there. And uh, one thing led to another. And one of those introductions was to uh, 
somebody who uh, it was through a former Lincoln uh, Properties partner who um, introduced me to somebody who was another Link, former Lincoln Properties partner who was working at the time for Steve Jobs, running his real estate and um, oh, wow, okay. department. He wanted to leave. He was going to you know one of the bigger tech companies and was looking to you know, help backfill his position. So um, I, you know, I was introduced to the opportunity, interviewed with a whole bunch of people, including Steve, and, decide, and people said, oh, why would you move from the investment side to, the, you know, to a, a corporate side? And I said, well, you know, I'll learn something. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I pretty much felt that I'd topped out at, at you know, Met didn't need another higher level person out here. They didn't. They were kind enough to place me, but they didn't really know what to do with me. Uh, yeah. And there were other people who, you know, had been here longer. Uh, so I thought, well, I'll learn a lot. I'll, I'll see what the world is like from a tenant's perspective. I'll learn a lot about tech, which is clearly the, you know, the future of, of the industry around here. And either it'll work out. Or it won't, and if it doesn't, I'll go find another job. And that was kind of my, my <laughs> attitude: of it'll be fun. I'll learn a lot. Why not? So um, I joined uh, Next Computer, sort of in the, in the last two and a half years of Next uh, existence, before mm -hmm. Steve sort of um, pulled the plug on on the company, and I had a blast. I, you know, I saw the world from a tenant's perspective. In fact, I had to go negotiate yeah. with Steve against Met, who was one of their landlords down Redwood Shores. And you know, Met sort of didn't understand the life cycle of, of startups. And mm. so it was a great perspective. I got to negotiate with landlords around the world, which was a whole lot of fun. I did a lot of work in Europe. Uh, oh, cool worked on a, a deal in Japan and, you know, all over the country. And it was really fun talking to landlords about what next needs were and understanding their world. So it's like, okay, if you need this, I need this. How can we make this work? And they said, oh, you're really different. You understand our world. So I really <laughs> had a good time. And, um, and. Oh, what do, uh, I mean, I, I know a lot of folks who are in, you know, they're who would love to go to corporate real estate to check it out and learn something, but they feel like they're going to get pigeonholed, right? It's like, that's, that's everyone's fear. It's like, and that person who was talking to me about doing some asset management stuff, they were like, I just don't want to be pigeonholed as a strictly an asset manager. Um, yeah. Cause if they, you know, all of a sudden I'm doing it for two years and it's like, well now maybe that's just a case of this becoming just a more institutional asset class, but it's kind of like people who seem to get pigeoned. Well, that's what people, whole. you know, mentioned to me. And I said, well, it sort of depends upon what you're doing and how you look at your skills. So when I left next at the time when, you know, Steve had decided people should want to buy his beautiful hardware box, but what they really wanted <laughs> was the software. So before he took the software, the next step operating system to Apple, where it became the, the foundation for, you know, what we all use today, uh, you know, um, I just, I, I began looking at what it was 
I, I was doing and what I gained. And because I had come from an investment background, I could put that in the context of, you know, I understand a tenant's perspective. I was negotiating with landlords all over the country, so I saw what was going on in different markets, um, right. what was going on in Europe. Uh, I was a good manager, and because I was a good manager and not, you know, a lot of the very ta hyper-talented people at Next who were doing different things, like, you know, they didn't want to mess with the front desk or how you manage this or that silly little operational thing. And so I, you know, I, that just sort of got, you know, I was given those things because I could manage people and I had a different perspective. So coming out of the next experience, I wound up going to an investment management firm that had a, a small growing real estate component to their, okay. um, they were doing stocks, international, domestic and international stocks and bonds. And they had the small real estate component. And they had started a small private REIT, which I, I grew. And, you know, I, but I was able to explain to them sort of my, my basket of skills. And, you know, in all honesty, I think the notoriety of having worked that closely with Steve didn't hurt. So, you know, yeah. I, why did you go to a corporate? Well, I thought next would be kind of fun and I'd learn something. So, you know, if I went to a more generic company with a less flamboyant, um, right. owner, would I have been able to make that switch as easily? It might not have been as easy, but I think I could have done it because it's all about explaining to people how you look at the world, what your skills are, and how those different experiences build into something better and different. Yeah, and um, now you get to learn how to, now you're working at a REIT, like you get to learn a new skill set, right? Yep. I mean, it's how to run a REIT. Like what is, I, I mean, I've it's a lot more, I've worked with REITs and there's always a lot more layers of compliance and all that type of stuff. Is it, what did you learn at the REIT? Well, I mean, it was fascinating because I, you know, got to work on rewriting the whole corporate um, document as we revamped it and then grew it or, and started a second REIT. So, you know, I, I learned about the whole SEC world and the securitization world. So, you know, it, it, and the, the trade, you know, real estate as a commodity being traded, uh, you know, on a how do you value real estate so that it, it has exchange values? How do you get people in and out as a, you know, in com comparison to the old, uh, the standard LP model, you know, where yeah. people are stuck until somebody decides they want to, you know, either sell on a secondary market uh, at a discount or the thing on wines. So, you know, I, I began, I was exposed to a whole different world of real estate ownership and, um, and perspective. And, and I was fortunate because I was doing so at a time when REITs were still a fairly small universe, but they were beginning to grow and there was beginning mm -hmm. and the green streets of the world were beginning to, you know, have more focus and, and help create a more defined, um, understandable u investing universe. So, you know, it was great being involved at that point in time and being part of that whole evolution of real estate into a, um, a grown-up asset class. Not that private, and I still, you know, uh, am a, a fan of private investing 
because I think it gives you a whole lot more flexibility than some of the public company, you know, the public world trading models. And even if it's a privately owned, non-traded REIT, you still have that structure where you're expected to look kind of like a, a public REIT structure. Right. Because you get the, ben the tax benefits, so you've got to um, earn it, as it were. So, you know, so it was a fabulous learning experience. And um, again, I like pro solving problems. I think as I've looked back over my career, that may be one of the defining characteristics of I don't understand how you solve this problem or I don't understand how that works. I'm going to go figure it out. And uh, so. Yeah. Uh, that and then so then you're, you're when I met you, you're at Swig, which is like it's kind of funny. Like I remember I was. I, I, I'm not from the Bay Area, and so I didn't I had no idea about Swig or anything when I first moved here, but I was telling my former father-in-law, I think I was going to meet you at Swig, and he's he was and he's been here for since the 80s, and he was like, wow, that's like a very prim and proper uh, San Francisco, you know, They're an iconic, owner. iconic family. Yeah, yeah, an iconic family, and they got iconic buildings, and yep. uh, he's like, make sure you dress appropriately and all that type of stuff, but it it, it, it is... Uh, I mean, you're a prim and proper person, but you're not, I mean, you're very like easy to get along with. There wasn't any errors about you. It was like kind of the opposite of what I expected of somebody from what he was saying. Um, have you been able to bring, well, I guess what, what was your kind of, what were you doing at Swig? What was your, your, you ran the company, but like, what was, I guess the mandate when you were there or your goals are there and kind of how also that's question number one. And then two, how have you been able to bring, I mean, you seem like a, just a genuinely nice person. How have you been able to bring that sort of attitude throughout your career at different stops? Because there's a lot of like not nice people in real estate too. Yeah, there are <laughs> too many. <laughs> not unique to you, real estate, however. Um, you know, when I arrived at Swig, uh, they were in a situation where they the sec. I was their first real non-family CEO. They'd had a, a temporary person who was a workout guy, uh, but he wasn't, he was just there to, to solve a couple of discrete problems. And he was a, a placeholder between the second generation, one of whom had passed away. Well, two of whom, well, there were three members of the second generation, one of whom uh, had never worked in the company, uh, a daughter of um, the founder, and then two brothers, one of whom had passed away, and then another who was waiting for heart transplant and eventually passed away. And the two brothers, one was more involved with the uh, office and the other with the hotels. But they came through a period, like many other real estate owners, uh, where they were over leveraged. And the, the hotels um, were um, consuming a, a disproportionate um, amount of the the cash flow from the hotels uh, from the office buildings and that was a problem and then the third generation which hired me uh, you know was saying look we think that the hotels are a distraction they've been you know we love each other as a family uh, but <laughs> you know the the hotels create too much um, you know tension 
and maybe it's time to sell them. So when I walked in the door, one of the first things I did was work on selling the Fairmont Hotels so they, you know, and mm. management company and using the proceeds from that sale, which was concluded in uh, May of what was it, 2000, I mean, 1998, to reca begin to recapitalize the office building portfolio. And so my mandate was to begin to resolve the situation where they had, you know, too much leverage. And in some cases, um, they'd, they'd brought in the, you know, inappropriate or mismatched partners to help resolve short-term issues. So the mm. rest, most of my tenure was involved in unraveling um, situations that I'd inherited that put the the um, the swigs at risk. So it was mm -hmm. you know constant problem solving. Uh, I wound up with partners that uh, were they and we wanted different things, and our horizon, our time horizons, and our desire for leverage were different. They were more risk tolerant. We were less risk tolerant. So through my tenure, I wound up sort of rationalizing all of that. And um, the last deal I worked on was the last big New York um, cleaning up a, a mismatched partnership uh. where, you know, through a series of things we couldn't control, we had uh, Blackstone as our partner. And while they're brilliant investors, they and we saw the world really differently. So that was, the, you know, that, that was the last deal I worked on. And then it was like, okay. You know, I've solved all the big challenges. Um, time to move on. What about, um, I worked with, we work with a lot of family offices and they want to, you know, they want to bring in their, they hire us to find like an institutional person to put in there to help them organize everything. And, um, but they're always, you're not used to it. Like they're like, oh, like my cousin's been working as the COO for the last 20 years. And, you know, we pay him a sandwich and a, and uh apartment or something you know like it's like and they, they, he's like they're lackey like they're generally not used to, uh, well, my 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 experience is like you know used to someone coming in and like integrating and it's not easy um well there was a lot of involvement people had a lot of opinions we put a board of directors together where pretty much anybody from the family while there was a rotation if people wanted to come to meetings they could um we brought in independent directors, which, you know, I think over time there were too many people on the board, but, and I'm not sure where it sits now, but, um, you know, people had opinions and perhaps going back to your point about my style, uh, as the trend, you know, a, a long transition CEO, um, I was probably more approachable and more malleable and, and, um, and, you know, I think, you know, People always felt like it was their; it was still their company, and um, and it was right. and I could and because the third generation had felt that their parents' generation had not been forthcoming with them on everything. It's like okay, it's totally open book. You want information, you can have it. Um, you know, nothing's a secret. This is all for you. So you, yeah, you learned how to. Or maybe you're just naturally able to do that. And it's just certain personalities can. It's a, I don't know. I just, it's like lack of uh, of like needing to be, have like the ego. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, all right, like 
You know what I mean? Yep. Even though you know back in, in the back of your head, you know, I'm, I'm in charge here. Yep. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so what have you, so I know you've been doing a lot of board seats. Um, what have you been doing since you left Swig? I know you're very busy, but. Well, let's see. Uh, well, I'm semi-retired, I guess you could say. I'm doing a little bit of consulting, largely through relationships. Uh, a couple of the, uh, a number of people I'd worked with over the years or who had worked with the Swig family when I, you know, when I retired from Swig called and said, oh, well, you're available. I've got this client who could use some help. Can you work with me with on them? So there was some of that. There were other people I knew who, who you know, reached out and said, "Oh, um, I could use your help." So over the years, I've done you know the the consulting kind of goes up and and down uh, in its intensity depending upon who needs what, uh, and I I look at it as a relationship. And and going back to what you said about there's some not so nice people. In, in the world, not just real estate. I made a promise to myself that I'd only work with people I liked, who I respected on uh, projects or issues that were of interest. And so I've held to that. Uh, a couple former uh, tenants reached out and said, gee, can you help me? You know, we're reformulating our business plan for our, our company um, or somebody, you know, we've got a generational transition issue. Can you work with me? Wow, yeah. My yeah. dad's, you know, selling the company. Can you help me think about what I might want to do next? Things of that nature. So it's been a lot of fun and everything's been different and and uh, so that's what I you know, that's what I've been doing work wise. I am on a couple boards. I'm on the board of uh, Berkshire Residential Investments headquartered in Boston, a multifamily company. And uh, I'm a trustee of my undergraduate alma mater. And then my husband and I but for the pandemic, uh, have been traveling and hiking and skiing a lot. That's awesome. Yeah, so I've, you know, I, I think I'm uh, a pretty fortunate person. So it seems like when you started out in this journey uh, in real estate, you were very interested in uh, like housing solutions and community development. Have you been able to keep that sort of theme throughout your career? I know like you're different working at different types of places that maybe aren't directly affecting housing, but do you have, for those of us who like have those kind of passions, but like need to pay, you know, pay our rent or pay our mortgage, you know what I mean? It's like the, the balance there sometimes. Yeah. And how, have you been able to keep that balance? Well, I don't know about balance. Uh, I was very involved and, and on the board of Spur for, um, mm -hmm. I don't know, nine years until I turned off. And uh, I've been less engaged probably due to the pandemic because so many of the, um, everything was virtual and after a while that it isn't as compelling. But they're doing fabulous work and I'm still very supportive of them. I've done some work, um, not, re not in the last couple years, but I had done some work with ULI, different ULI groups uh, on housing and affordability and I, I was involved with a couple of local nonprofits working on, you know, starting green benefit districts and, and you know, doing some more community-based work. Uh, I'm probably doing less now than I should be, but, you know, some of it's... I'll do it for you. Yeah. You know, you can only... You've earned, you've earned your skiing. And then, you know, Berkshire <laughs> is, 
um, very supportive of a group out in New England that uh, does a terrific job of, of, um, of you know, building housing, providing housing solutions for people in difficulty. And so you know, through Berkshire, I'm supportive of that. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's awesome. That's great. Um, all right. Well, that was the easy part of the of the the show. Are you ready for the hard part? Uh oh. I don't know. Depends on how. It's called the hot seat. Okay. The Hot Seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofit startups and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities, reduce turnover, and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com, K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. Do you have a book or podcast recommendation? Oh, um, well, I listen to too many newsy podcasts. Uh, no, why do you, why do you do that to yourself? Well, I don't know. Cause I worry, but one of the ones that I find the most, um, thought provoking is the Ezra Klein show. He's very smart. He was based here until he moved back to the East coast. And he always has a slightly different angle on some of the issues that, you know, people broadly talk about. So that's interesting. And then book, um, Well, a, a really good fiction book that I, I've read recently. Uh, yes, please. I need, it, I need more. It's called This is Happiness by an Irish writer, Niall Williams. And it's just this absolutely beautifully written book that's all about community. It's uh, set in a Western Irish village in the 70s when, get this, okay. electricity first arrives and so you know you've got this this and, and a, a, a young kid is living with his grandparents his parents live in you know, Dublin and so he's experiencing this village life that is kind of still very turn of the centuries ish feeling but you've got right. this modern world out there stuff and it's just this delightful um, beautiful story of people and community and and i'm going to add that to my goodreads my goodreads app so those are my things i want to read i did a course in irish literature in college so i i've never read that one but i I am a big fan of irish literature uh that's awesome i'm gonna i will read that all right so question number two what is what is your most memorable real estate deal Anyone that jumps out at you just for 
most memorable. Um, Doesn't have to be one. There could be. Well, couple. there are a couple. Uh, one with Swig was the sale of the Fairmont Hotels to yeah. Lou Wolf and his um, fund. And, you know, that whole process was uh, phenomenal. Lou was great to work with. And another was the, um, the Swigs owned uh, 1411 Broadway, a, a, a million plus square foot building uh, on, in, uh, in Midtown. And we acquired, we wound up with uh, Blackstone as our partner and you know they wanted to do a whole bunch of things differently than we did and eventually through uh, a process we negotiated with them we were able to bring in you know a, another partner to replace them and that was a real cliffhanger because you know they're important they're yeah powerful and they're not pushovers so that was a, a really memorable deal yeah um, now when you were hiring folks, like what, what, so this podcast is often listened to by people earlier in their career. What did, what did, what skills did you look for in, when you were looking to hire someone skills and I guess hard skills and soft skills? Well, depending upon the role, if I was looking for somebody who is real estate related, I wanted somebody who had a, wasn't a rank beginner. But I also wanted people who were good communicators who could write well, because if you can write well, that usually means you can organize your thoughts and communicate effectively. Right. Uh, so I was looking less for the hard skills, although those were important, but somebody who was thoughtful and who was able to have a big picture perspective as well as a, you know, be able to focus on the, the micro and somebody who could work as a team member. Right. You know, again, and a problem it solver. It wasn't all about a problem solver, but not, <laughs> but you know, big self entitled egos weren't going to play well in a small company where people had to wear a lot of hats and work together closely. This is real estate. That's all it is. is ego. I'm kidding. <laughs> it's a lot of it though. Um, you mentioned one of your mentors, Betsy Clark. Um, do you have any other mentors? That helped you along the way? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot, but any more than Betsy, because I didn't work with Betsy very long. Uh, a gentleman named uh, Tony Orbe, who hired me at MetLife in Boston, who's, he was a um, Puerto Rican Basque background. Uh, huh, interesting. Had worked in, I don't think it was Special Forces, but a similar kind of organization, you know, uh, military, military organization in Vietnam and he was a really great leader and a really inspiring mentor. I mean, he taught, you know, his approach to, to training us all was to give us a well-rounded um, exposure to lots of different things. He was just a great mentor and tremendously supportive and a pretty unique individual. He, you know, he didn't fit any molds, which is probably why he got sent from New York to Boston. Like, okay, Tony, you go figure this out. And he did. And, right. and he hired really well. Great bunch of people. That's awesome. 
Well, Gene, it's been great getting to know you better. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast here, and I hope to see you in person soon. I hope so. Thanks for inviting me. It's been fun.